Most importantly, and the reason why we honor her with this annual lecture, Pat was a consummate teacher, gifted with the ability to convey to students what another great educator beautifully called the sheer expansive joy of learning. Miss O'Donovan, or Miss O.D., also affectionately known as P.O.D. or P.O.D., is a great storyteller with a wonderful sense of humor, an infectious laugh, and a perennially youthful willingness to be surprised by beauty, truth, knowledge, life. With Pat, there's always something new to learn, to share with others, to be delighted and instructed by. Her students never forget her English and history classes, her love for language and the human drama of history, or her caring interests in her students, with whom she forged many abiding friendships, seeing them through the ups and downs of college, professional, and personal life. From its beginning, Ocrest has been endowed with teachers like Pat, who love to learn, who love their subject, and love their students. The advice Pope Emeritus Benedict gave to young university professors in Spain is advice that our faculty, following in the fo footsteps of Pat, embrace. Never lose that enthusiasm and concern for truth, he said. Always remember that teaching is not just about communicating content, but about forming young people. You need to understand and love them, to awaken their innate thirst for truth and their yearning for transcendence. Be for them a source of encouragement and strength. Pat was able to come from Boston, where she lives, for the first O'Donovan lecture five years ago, but finds it a challenge to fly now that she's in her mid-80s. I told her when I picked her up at the airport for that first lecture that a few people had asked if it was a memorial lecture. She got a lot of mileage out of that, as you can imagine. And I want to assure people that this is still not a memorial lecture. Um, she's every bit the live wire she's always been. Pat was an English and history teacher during her 30 plus years in the classroom. One who naturally brought in theology, philosophy, drama, and art history into her classes. So we decided to make this lecture a humanities lecture. Each year, our goal has been to invite a speaker who can spark that desire to learn that's in all of us, and in doing so, to remind us that education, in the words of Jacques Maritain, is a human awakening. This year, it's my distinct pleasure to introduce the first current faculty member to be invited to give the O'Donovan Lecture, Paula Rondon Burgos. Ms. Rondon Borgos holds a BA in Classics from UVA and an MAT in Latin and the Classical Humanities from the University of Massachusetts Amherst. She's currently pursuing a PhD in Classics and Ancient History at the University of Durham in England. She's been teaching in a, in a variety of settings since 2009, one of those settings including rural Ethiopia. Her dissertation is entitled Villas and Politics in Cicero's Letters to Atticus and she plans to defend it this summer, um, 2019. She will be the fifth teacher at Ocrest holding a doctorate. Ms. Rondon Burgos joined Ocrest in September 2018 and presently teaches Latin and geometry and is the freshman class dean. When I asked her for more fascinating facts, although I don't know why I asked her because those are already very fascinating, um, she said she is a massive fan of the Liverpool FC a soccer club in the English Premier League. <laughs> I am 
absolutely delighted to welcome Paula Rondon Burgos. Thank you very much, Mary, for that very generous introduction. Um, and good evening, everyone. It is a great pleasure to be with you tonight. I suspect that it's every graduate student's dream come true to be able to hold forth on her subject extensively and before a captive audience. Um, otherwise, we can usually expect uh, the fruits of our labor to be consigned to some dusty corner of a library never to be known or cherished, as we fervently hope they will be, um, except perhaps by the next generation of eager graduate students seeking out apparently obscure and marginal knowledge. <laughs> Welcome to the past six years of my life. <laughs> my own topic of research, Marcus Tullius Cicero, an ancient Roman lawyer, politician, and author of the first century BC, and someone who definitely is, or at any rate, ought to be anything but obscure and marginal, has actually been subject to this typically unceremonious treatment, and at the hands of a fellow graduate student, no less. Towards the start of our doctoral studies, my friend Joe and I were having a chat about our areas of research. Joe, in the discipline of mathematical physics, was enthusiastically telling me all about something called scattering amplitudes, whatever those are. He then asked me about my topic, a much more interesting turn in our conversation. I proudly stated, I study Cicero. Joe at first gave me a puzzled look, and then he cautiously replied, Cicero? Is that a disease? <laughs> no, Joe, I protested indignantly and proceeded to pontificate ad nauseam about the wonders of my beloved Cicero. The fact that Joe thought Cicero was a virus rather than a distinguished member of our species was, of course, an innocent mistake. But over time and in a roundabout way, his comment got me thinking. Cicero is, after all, a human person. And that should make a difference in how I and others as students of all things Ciceronian, approach him. Yet, as I have conducted my research, I have observed some unsettling trends in how scholars regard Cicero. Two in particular stand out. The first is an excess of personal criticism of the man. Its prime representative is Theodore Mommsen, a 19th century German scholar and author of the magisterial history of Rome whose scathing judgment of Cicero as a petty, cowardly, self-serving politician, unworthy of serious recognition for his abilities in statecraft or moral uprightness, still lingers in the backdrop of some contemporary scholarship. Christian Habicht, in his 1990 biography of Cicero, traces this ongoing distaste for Cicero as a politician and ultimately concludes that, quote, only prejudice can deny that Cicero, despite all his weaknesses and lack of robustness, deserves a prominent place among the political leaders of the time. While Cicero the politician is still and will always remain a topic worth discussing, to extenuate his shortcomings in this role would serve no purpose. Hobbit continues, they are indisputable, these shortcomings, 
And the severest witness for the prosecution is most often Cicero himself. However, they can and should be balanced by his virtues, which many scholars often fail to notice or to appreciate adequately. For a scholar who enjoys a sheltered position at his desk, where no question of life and death is at stake. It is easy enough to poke fun at a politician who vacillates in critical situations. It is easy, but it is not fair." End quote. Hubbard underscores that the understanding and compassion which we often and willingly extend to ourselves when we find ourselves in a tight spot should not be denied to a fellow human being merely because he no longer walks this earth or only has words on a page to speak on his behalf. Habicht leaves, leaves unstated the ground for such a claim, namely that the scholar and the object of his study, in this case Cicero, are on the same footing. That is to say, both are human persons. But at least Habicht tacitly acknowledges that when we are dealing with the story of human persons, we are treading on special, perhaps even sacred, territory. And as such, our approach should be more sensitive. We should conduct our scrutiny of ancient lives with a healthy awareness that, thanks to our shared humanity, the life we are judging could be our own. The second common approach to Cicero, which I have encountered in my research, likewise seems to neglect the human side of Cicero, albeit in a more subtle way. In the past two to three decades, many scholars have been less inclined to pronounce an overtly condemnatory sentence upon Cicero and his life story, but have instead, and in the name of dispassionate critical analysis, attempted to overinterpret Cicero's own words, a few even going so far as to subvert a face value reading of Cicero's own claims about his aspirations and ambitions. This type of researcher pokes and prods at Ciceronian texts, putting them under a microscope and dissecting them to pieces in the hopes of unearthing some underlying meaning, even if, and perhaps even especially when, that meaning runs counter to Cicero's own patently stated claims. On the one hand, it is right to acknowledge that this particular method of analysis has produced some good fruit for the field of Ciceronian studies. Close textual analysis has indeed enabled scholars, myself included, to see how words can be manipulated and can intentionally contain multiple connotations. On the other hand, this approach also undermines Cicero's humanity. Firstly, by sidelining his agency to speak for himself, and secondly, on focusing so much on the proverbial trees that the sight of the forest is lost. Scholars seem to forget what humans are up to when, for example, we write a letter to a friend. How often do we simply put pen to paper without deliberately weaving in double meanings into our words, wanting our reader to sift through a surface-level interpretation of the text in order to discover our true message? Perhaps this is sometimes the case, but I cannot believe that people write letters like this on a regular basis. And if we do not do so in our own time, why should an ancient person like Cicero be any different in this regard? It seems to me that these two relatively modern approaches to Cicero, 
the one characterized by antagonism and the other by distrust, have at their core the same misunderstanding of their subject matter. For when we study Cicero, indeed, when we consider the story of any human person, his hopes, his experiences, his world, we are studying a story that has been endowed with a unique and abiding dignity. And this dignity should receive due respect in our scholarship. This is because, on my reading, the story of humanity and the story of every human person who ever was, is, or will be, has been utterly elevated by the incarnation of Christ when God himself took on human flesh. His biography, the life of Jesus as narrated in the Gospels, is the greatest story ever told. But precisely because the story of Jesus Christ is so magnificent, it gives transcendent meaning and value to all of our biographies, and to Cicero's life story too. So although I can't and won't claim that Cicero's biography is the greatest story ever told, it's still pretty special and well worth engaging with. I hope that in so doing, we will not only get to know a fellow human being a little bit better, but that we will, as sharers in the same great narrative, get to know ourselves a little bit better too. So without further ado, I present to you the second greatest story ever told. No person from antiquity is better known to us than Marcus Tullius Cicero. And this is, by and large, due to the survival of his voluminous literary output. Cicero's writings mainly comprise three genres, forensic and political speeches, rhetorical and philosophical treatises, and personal letters, as well as formal correspondence. These texts, assiduously preserved by succeeding generations, have served to inspire the craft of orators, the faith of saints, and the ambitions of classically trained students, including our own Oakcrest girls, even up to our own day. The set of writings I have found most gripping and enlightening have been Cicero's letters to his lifelong friend, Titus Pomponius Atticus. About 400 letters survive, and these texts have been renowned since Cicero's own day for their detailed and riveting first-hand account of contemporary history. They also conveniently contain a detailed and riveting first-hand account of Cicero's personal life over nearly a quarter of a century. In an attempt to allow Cicero to speak for himself, where possible, I will quote from his correspondence as I tell his story. All translations of ancient texts, those of Cicero and of other authors, are taken from the Loeb Classical Library series, unless otherwise noted. Cicero was born on January 3rd, 106 BC, in the town of Arpinum, located about 70 miles southeast of Rome in the foothills of the Apennines. Though boasting long-standing citizenship rights and the home of the notable general and seven-time consul Gaius Marius, Arpinum was nevertheless a mostly inconsequential municipality, and the Cicero family, while of solid equestrian, that is middle-class heritage, had their civic influence mostly limited to the local level. Their name probably didn't help others to take them too seriously either, for Cicero in Latin means chickpea or garbanzo bean. <laughs> Not exactly the most inspiring or courtly of names, but 
it's likely that this cognomen was adapted thanks to some excuse me, adopted thanks to some ancestor having a dent in his nose or something like that that reminded people of uh, the dent in a chickpea. Cicero would take it all in stride and with characteristic good humor. When, for example, as an adult, he had occasion to make an offering of silver in a temple, he had his donation inscribed with Marcus, his first name or prinomen, then Tullius, his family name or nomen, which corresponds to our modern day designation of surname, and lastly, with the image of a garbanzo bean in place of the word Cicero. Hopefully the gods of the temple had a good chuckle at that. In any case, the main takeaway about the Cicerones is this. No one in their lineage had yet held the consulship. That last and glorious rung of the ladder of Roman political offices. Cicero's new man's status would both spur and frustrate his ambitions to the end of his days. Cicero was the first child of Marcus and Helvia. His younger brother, Quintus, was born four years later in 102. The two siblings couldn't have been more different. One way to get at their individuality might be to consider where each brother was in the mid-50s BC. Quintus, the soldiering type, even from a young age, was courageously fighting alongside Julius Caesar in that great general's invasion of the wild Isle of Britain. Even as his brother was in distant lands, risking his life to acquire new territory for the Roman Republic, Cicero was sitting cozily at home in Rome and quipping to Atticus about the whole matter, quote, the result of the war against Britain is eagerly awaited, for the approaches to the island are known to be warded with wondrous massy walls. It is also now ascertained that there isn't a grain of silver on the island, nor any prospect of booty apart from captives. And I fancy you won't expect any of them to be highly qualified in literature or music, end quote. No offense to anyone from Britain here, by the way. That's, <laughs> I don't speak for Cicero. The high value Cicero placed on learning and cultural refinement in this letter was not just to take a dig at the barbarian Britons. He had always been partial to intellectual pursuits. The ancient historian Plutarch, writing in Greek, tells us that Cicero was such a devoted and impressive student when he was a kid that the parents of his classmates would flock to school to watch Cicero outperform their own sons. <laughs> that must have been supremely awkward for all the other children around. But for Cicero, no doubt, no doubt, <laughs> it probably inaugurated the very high regard he had for himself for the rest of his life. <laughs> and his penchant for telling others all about that. <laughs> to quote one of his modern biographers, Roman men were expected to blow their own trumpets. Cicero perpetually overblew his, of course. <laughs> but back to the story. Seeking to nurture the natural aptitudes of his eldest son in particular, Papa Cicero moved the family to Rome after his boys had completed the customary elementary education in Arpinum, a course which would have included, above all, study of the Latin and Greek languages. There, as a youthful teenager, Cicero entered into apprenticeship-style learning, shadowing the great legal minds and practitioners of his day as they went about their business in the courts 
in the public political debates taking place in the forum and in their homes as they reminisced over exemplars of their craft from the good old days of Roman history. It was here that he met and formed a friendship with Atticus, a fellow student three years his senior. In his later teens, Cicero served in the army, honorably, if unenthusiastically. Warfare was not his cup of tea. Having completed this traditional requirement, Cicero threw himself into honing his craft as an advocate and received his first major opportunity to shine on the big stage when, in 80 BC and at the age of 26, he took on a client who was falsely accused of murder named Roscius of Ameria. It was a tough case. The prosecution had cooked up the charge, even going so far as to plant what was effectively fake evidence in order to incriminate poor Roscius. The reason? The true murderer was a favorite lackey of the then consul and former dictator, Sulla. By accepting the defense of Roscius, Cicero was choosing to pick a fight against the powers that be. And by his sheer skill as a convincing advocate, and thankfully a jury that hadn't succumbed to bribery, he won the case. It is likely that around this time, Cicero married Terentia, a well-to-do daughter of a family who could boast another daughter as a vestal virgin, those select and much-revered priestesses who tended the eternal flame of Rome. Unfortunately, Cicero was not able to settle down and have a peaceful start to his newfound family life. Fearing political retribution for his success in the trial of Roscius, and yet at the same time on a legitimate excuse of ill health, Cicero booked it out of Rome and made his way to Greece and Asia Minor, which is modern Turkey, where he could spend the next three years sitting at the feet of the great masters of rhetoric and philosophy and honing his abilities as an orator, soon to be fit not only to argue in the courtroom, but to persuade in the Senate House. Upon his return to Rome in 76 BC, at the age of 30, Cicero began his climb through the Cursus Honorum, a series of political offices leading up to the consulship. In 75, Cicero was elected as a quaestor, a treasurer for Sicily. He served in the position honorably and was to become a much beloved champion of the Sicilians. When in 70 BC, the island's residents became sick of enduring the abuse of their corrupt governor, Varys, who had been plundering their homes and temples by hook and by crook in order to acquire their works of art and other treasures, they hired Cicero to uphold their cause. Varys hired for his defense Hortensius, Rome's most renowned lawyer at the time someone who not only had expertise in advocacy, but who also, having married into one of Rome's most prestigious clans, the Lutatii, carried significant social clout. Up against an attorney of such repute, Cicero stood little chance, but he was smart. Rather than risk being outlawyered by the expert in the room, Cicero cleverly chose to pursue his prosecution by instead giving a quick introductory speech defaming Varys, and then jumping straight into the witnesses' testimonies, which turned out to be so rock solid and irrefutable that on the advice of his own counsel Hortensius, 
Varys fled into self-exile even before the jury could come to a decision. <laughs> this courtroom triumph secured Cicero's standing as Rome's preeminent advocate and precipitated further political successes. The following year, 69 BC, Cicero was elected to the aedileship, the magistracy in charge of public building and public entertainment. Cicero thrived in this role, in part thanks to the support of the Sicilians he had championed, who sent him surplus grain from their island, which Cicero could then distribute in the capital, thereby gaining for himself the support and favor of the masses. It is at this stage in his career that Cicero's correspondence with Atticus picks up, with the first extant letter opening as follows. Knowing me as well as you do, you can appreciate better than most how deeply my cousin Lucius's death has grieved me and what a loss it means to me in both public and private life. All the pleasure that one human being's kindness and charm can give another, I had from him. So I do not doubt that you too are sorry, for you will feel my distress, and you yourself have lost a family connection and a friend, one who possessed every good quality and disposition to serve others, and who loved you, both of his own accord, and from hearing me speak of you. As this letter suggests, by this point in time, Cicero and Atticus were not only friends, but in-laws, for Cicero's brother Quintus had married Atticus's sister Pomponia. It's a great name, by the way, Pomponia. Their siblings' relationship, however, was a rocky one. But it still represented an important legal, socio-cultural, and familial bond between Cicero and Atticus, whose financial resources and social connections, as well as whose steady companionship and level-headed advice, Cicero would draw on time and again in his many moments of need. Several such moments were fast approaching in the mid-60s BC, as Cicero prepared himself to run for the praetorship and finally the consulship. Cicero took steps to garner as wide a backing as possible, including giving public speeches on behalf of the rising star of Pompey the Great, a general gaining great celebrity as victor over pirates in the Mediterranean Sea and insurgent kingdoms in the eastern provinces. Cicero campaigned up and down Italy himself, making sure to flatter potential voters by memorizing their names. He also recruited Atticus to lobby for Cicero's candidacy among the nobility, a constituency that, due to Cicero's new man's status, remained largely out of his reach. Thanks to Cicero's great efforts, he was elected to the consulship in 63, in suo anno, that is, at the youngest possible age of 43 similar to our own minimum age that we hold for the presidency. He was thoroughly thrilled with himself, but would, of course, <laughs> but would in the final two months of 63 face a major challenge to his authority, a supposed coup d'etat orchestrated by Catiline, a disgruntled aristocrat who, in addition to being down and out, was also miffed at having failed to attain the consulship after multiple attempts, including running against Cicero. Catiline had gathered to himself other destitute members of society and planned an overthrow of the government which Cicero, of which Cicero was the head. Cicero got wind of the conspiracy and, by means of a series of four 
fiery speeches delivered both to fellow senators and to the people over the course of several weeks, he exposed the plot. Catiline, not unlike Verres, hightailed it out of Rome, knowing that Cicero had roasted him completely. The speeches are so entirely powerful and gripping that they are still read today, including right here at Oakcrest, where Latin four and five students are presently making their way through the first Catalinarian speech. While Cicero had managed to expel the poison of Catiline from the capital, some of Catiline's fellow conspirators had been found in the city and were arrested. The question remained, what to do with these criminals? A debate in the Senate ensued, with Caesar arguing for exile and Cato arguing for the death penalty. Cato's point of view won the day, and it fell to Cicero, by virtue of his leadership as consul, to see that the chosen punishment was carried out. Cicero himself led the conspirators to the prison where they were summarily executed without a trial. A trial which was, however, guaranteed to them as Roman citizens. This was no minor oversight. On the contrary, the remainder of Cicero's life may be regarded as one long and often painful exercise in confronting the repercussions of his decisive leadership in this moment. Still, it would be impossible to overstate Cicero's overall self-satisfaction with his year as consul. On the one hand, he had attained individual greatness, having reached the summit of the Cursus Honorum, that coveted landmark of civic progress for the ambitious new man. On the other hand, his consulship, so he assured himself, had been nothing short of a providential boon for the commonwealth, too. Under his leadership, an insidious and potentially disastrous insurgency had been quelled. In Cicero's words, and you might want to take them with a grain of salt, the glory he garnered on the execution day of the Catalinarian conspirators was, quote, exceptional and even legendary, end quote. With characteristic modesty, Cicero also credits himself with having established during his consular year the two pillars upon which the Republic itself rested, respect for senatorial authority and unanimity among the social ranks. Much more could be said about Cicero's not wholly unjustified view that his consulship amounted to the salvation of the state. But unlike Cicero, I won't belabor the point. In addition, by this point in time, Cicero was enjoying a stable and happy home life with a daughter, Tullia, whom he adored, and a son, Marcus, he was proud to be raising. The upshot of the consular uh, story is that its success merited the acclaim of, high, merited acclaim of the highest order and greater prominence in society too. But instead, in the waning days of 63, before his term of office had even come to a close, Cicero was already being hounded by detractors. Citing unlawful arrogation of powers, the tribune Metellus Nepos denied Cicero, as outgoing consul, the customary opportunity to give an account of his magisterial activities. In the event, Cicero circumvented the obstruction, but it was just his first taste of a post-consular period that would bring him much less praise and prestige than he had bargained for. By early 61, when the text of the letters to Atticus picks up again after a four-year-long hiatus, Cicero had been demoted to second speaker in the house, a sure sign that things had not gone to plan. 
Further indications of his decline materialized as 61 wore on. The crooked trial for the Bonadea scandal laid bare several of the setbacks which his consular person and consular agenda had suffered. The Bonadea scandal went as follows, and here I will quote from Rex Warner's translation of Plutarch's Life of Cicero. Clodius was a member of a noble family, young in years, but bold in spirit, and one who was determined to get his own way. He was in love with Caesar's wife, Pompeia, and got into his house, that is Caesar's house, secretly by dressing up as a woman lute player. For the women of Rome were celebrating in Caesar's house that mysterious ceremony which men are not allowed to see, and there was no man present. Clodius, however, being still a youth who had not yet grown a beard, hoped to slip through with the women and get to Pompeia without being noticed. Bad plan. But as he came in at night and the house was a large one, he lost his way in the passages. Whoops. And while he was wandering about, a maid of Caesar's mother, Aurelia, saw him and asked him what his name was. Since he was forced to speak, he said that he was looking for one of Pompeia's servants called Abra. And the maid, realizing that his voice was not that of a woman, shrieked out and called all the women together. They shut all the doors and carried out a thorough search until they found Clodius hiding in the room of the girl with whom he had come into the house. This affair caused a great scandal, and Caesar divorced Pompeia and instituted proceedings against Clodius on the charge of sacrilege. Clodius was brought to trial. Everyone in the city knew he was guilty of the sacrilege, but Clodius alleged his innocence, claiming that he had been out of town on the day when the sacred rites had taken place. Cicero was called to witness for the prosecution and promptly blew up Clodius's alibi, declaring that Clodius had in fact come over to Cicero's house for a cup of tea on the very day in question. Clodius was furious, but the jury had been bribed and Clodius was acquitted to the great dismay of many. More to it, Cicero was subject to mocking abuse during the, the, during the trial, especially snide comments related to his humble beginnings. It was clear that the title of former consul had not in practice obtained for him the esteem of the ruling classes. The apple of Cicero's eye to receive the adulation of his senatorial peers for the rest of his days would, sadly for him, remain out of grasp. Rather than basking in primus inter pares status following his consulship, Cicero suffered a major decline in popularity, which reached its nadir at his exile in 58. The exile was orchestrated by none other than Clodius, who in an effort to get back at Cicero, for his uncooperative testimony at the trial for the Bonadea scandal, charged Cicero with the murder of Roman citizens without a trial. A fair accusation, unfortunately, for Cicero. He left Rome of his own volition under cover of night before he could be hounded out of the capital by his detractors. Utterly dejected over his exile, Cicero only half-heartedly awaited the fruits of the efforts of relatives and friends for his recall 
Nevertheless, at least in April of 58, at the start of his journey away from the city, he had confidently assured his trusted friend Atticus, quote, I am the same man. My enemies have robbed me of what I have, but not of what I am. This initial sureness in his sense of self, despite tragic circumstances, promptly unraveled as the prospects of his restoration grew slimmer and slimmer over the next few weeks. By June, Cicero was lamenting to his brother Quintus, quote, you would not have seen your brother, the man you left in Rome, the man you knew. You would not have seen any trace or shadow of him, only the likeness of a breathing corpse, end quote. The vivid language Cicero employs in this passage conveys the impression that he had experienced a virtual loss of self. His person, his core essence, had evanesced, leaving just the empty shell of the man. Indeed, in the dog days of summer, Cicero penned a woeful letter to Atticus in which he mused, quote, I mourn the loss not only of the things and persons that were mine, but of my very self. What am I now? This introspective reflection crystallizes what other such expressions of self-understanding in his correspondence only managed to articulate indirectly and incompletely. Elsewhere, for example, Cicero plainly lists those things and persons that were mine, his rank, fame, children, fortune, and brother. But he does not go so far as to count among their number his very identity. Here, on the other hand, he bypasses the incidentals and gets right to the heart of the matter. His very self had somehow or other perished in his exile. Cicero's perception of his identity, of who or what he was, had become totally unmoored over the course of mid-58. Cicero's correspondence with Atticus breaks off during the exile period, but picks up again when Cicero returned to Rome in the late summer of 57, and set about trying to restore his standing. It was an uphill struggle. According to Cicero, he was still treated as a pariah in polite society, despite his laudable zero-to-hero trajectory and his impeccably upright conduct throughout. He had the opportunity to exhibit the latter quality on the big stage when, in 51, he set off to be governor of the province of Cilicia, which is also in modern-day Turkey. Cicero, a governor with a conscience, behaved admirably, unlike his predecessors in Cilicia, who had overtaxed and exploited the residents of this province. Cicero, thrilled with his own conduct, wrote to Atticus, quote, never in all my life have I gained so much ple pleasure as I do from my integrity here. <laughs> and it is not so much the reclame, which is enormous, as the practice itself that gratifies me. In a word, it has been worth it. I did not know myself. I never quite realized my capabilities in this line. I have a right to a swollen head. It is a fine achievement, end quote. <laughs> Still, ill-suited to life at any great distance from the capital, Cicero itched to go back home to Rome. What awaited him there, however, was merely the protracted final act of his life story. Within weeks of his return, Cicero was grappling with the news that Caesar was speeding through Italy in hot pursuit of Pompey. Indecisive to a fault, 
Cicero spent the early months of 49 BC wavering between his options, either to soldier on with Pompey or to submit to Caesar. Cicero eventually allied himself with the former to his great regret. Bouncing back and forth among humiliation, defeatism, and defiance during the mid-40s, Cicero grieved the decay of the Republic and strove to bolster what was left of it through a series of writing projects. These years were made all the harder to bear because of the loss of Cicero's beloved daughter, Tullia, and the political uh, confusion which followed Caesar's assassination, which we celebrated yesterday. Well, celebrated, that depends. <laughs> Maybe you mourn it. Um, Cicero himself would not live to see the end of the decade. After one last hurrah against Mark Antony's pretensions to power, Mark Antony being Caesar's successor, Cicero's name was added to the proscription lists, that is, lists of people to be murdered. He was beheaded in the waning days of 43 BC. On December 7th, in particular, it is a day that will live in infamy, much like the bombing of Pearl Harbor less than a month shy of his 64th birthday. To honor the man, I would like to read to you his death scene from Plutarch's biography. Meanwhile, however, the murderers had arrived. These were the centurion Herennius and Popilius, an officer in the army who had in the past been defended by Cicero when he was prosecuted for having murdered his father. They had their helpers with them. They found the door shut and broke them down. But Cicero was not to be seen. And the people in the house said that they did not know where he was. Then we are told, a young man who had been educated by Cicero in literature and philosophy, an ex-slave of Cicero's brother Quintus, Philologus by name, told the officer that the litter, that is the instrument or vehicle by which Romans were carried, was being carried down to the sea by a path that was under the cover of the trees. The officer took a few men with him and hurried round to the place where the path came out of the woods. And Herennius went running down the path. Cicero heard him coming and ordered his servants to set the litter down where they were. He himself, in that characteristic posture of his, with his chin resting on his left hand, looked steadfastly at his murderers. He was all covered in dust. His hair was long and disordered, and his face was pinched and wasted with his anxieties, so that most of those who stood by covered their faces while Herennius was killing him. His throat was cut as he stretched his neck out from the litter. By Antony's orders, Herennius cut off his head and his hands, the hands with which he had written the Philippics. It was Cicero himself who had called these speeches against Antony the Philippics, and they have retained the title to the present day. Phileas Patercolus, a Roman historian, writes about this scene. By the crime of Antony, when Cicero was beheaded, the voice of the people was severed. Nor did anyone raise a hand in defense of the man who for so many years had protected the interests both of the state and of the private citizen. But you accomplished nothing, Mark Antony, for the indignation that surges in my breast 
compels me to exceed the bounds I have set for my narrative. You accomplished nothing, I say, by offering a reward for the sealing of those divine lips and the severing of that illustrious head, and by encompassing with a death fee the murder of so great a consul and of the man who had once saved the state. You took from Marcus Cicero a few anxious days, a few senile years, a life which would have been more wretched under your domination than was his death in your triumvirate. But you did not rob him of his fame, the glory of his deeds and words. Nay, you but enhanced them. He lives and will continue to live in the memory of the ages. And so long as this universe shall endure, this universe saw, pardon me, this universe which whether created by chance or by divine providence or by whatever cause, he, almost alone of all the Romans, saw with the mind of his eye, grasped with his intellect, and illumined with his eloquence. So long shall it be accompanied throughout the ages by the fame of Cicero. All posterity will admire the speeches that he wrote against you, while your deed to him will call forth their condemnation and the race of man shall sooner pass from the world than the name of Cicero be forgotten. Cicero's name was not forgotten, indeed, as he himself so desired. Writing to Atticus during the downturn following his consulship, and here I'd like to quote again from Cicero. And what will history say of me a thousand years hence. Isn't it incredible that he thought to write that? <laughs> well, maybe not, seeing as we're talking about Cicero, but it's still pretty cool. And what will history say of me a thousand years hence? I am far more in awe of that than of the tittle-tattle of my contemporaries. In the centuries which followed, Cicero's example as an orator was, in fact, especially admired among such fellow Romans as Seneca the Younger, the ill-fated advisor of the emperor, Nero, and Quintilian, a scholar who, during the reign of the emperor Trajan, codified the study of rhetoric, largely based on Cicero's example in Quintilian's own Instituto Oratoria. Cicero was also a favorite among the early Christians as well. Saint Jerome, who produced the Latin translation of the Bible, uh, tells a humorous story St. Jerome, from a young age, had really loved Cicero's writings, perhaps a little too much, actually. He decided that he, in fact, needed to fast in order to allow himself to be permitted to read Cicero. Well, one day, on his way to Jerusalem, experiencing probably a fever dream from both the fasting and an illness, he found himself in a terrible situation. He was in front of a heavenly tribunal, and the judge there asked him to identify himself. St. Jerome replied, I am a Christian. But the judge immediately denied this self-description. He said, you are not a Christian, you are a Ciceronian, for where your treasure is, there is your heart also. I often wonder if I myself might meet St. Jerome's fate when I reach the pearly gates. God willing. The treatises of Cicero, his philosophical and rhetorical works, uh, were especially of interest to two other major saints, 
St. Ambrose, who based his own work, uh, De Officiis, on duties on uh, Cicero's own De Officiis, um, a letter that Cicero had written to his young son, Marcus, instructing him on the right way to live. In this, Ambrose expands on the cardinal virtues, which were, of course, originally codified by Cicero himself. St. Augustine, a pupil of Ambrose, likewise credits his own conversion to Christianity to a philosophical treatise of Cicero's called the Hortensius. And it's incredible, if you read the Confessions of Augustine, you see that he was so influenced by Cicero's philosophy. And Thomas Aquinas himself is, of course, no stranger to the writings and intellect of Cicero. We've seen that the speeches were influential to the folks who lived in the late empire, then the treatises to the Christian, early Christians. Lastly, Cicero's letters were of greatest fascination to those who lived during the Renaissance period, in particular the humanist Petrarch um, was uh, credited with finding many of Cicero's letters, including those to Atticus. And he was devastated, actually, when he found these letters because they reveal a real Cicero, not the stately Cicero that we hear pouncing about Rome, defending clients here and there, triumphing over his um, enemies in his political speeches. Here in the real letters, we see Cicero's flaws. We see especially this vain glory that he displays all the time. And Petrarch was very disappointed by this. Not surprisingly, Petrarch decided to respond to Cicero in a letter of his own, writing his disapproval, saying, how could you disappoint me so, Cicero? This was not the man I thought you were. Petrarch's discovery of the letters and his bringing them to the fore in that time opened the road to the approach that I began my talk with, that is Momsen's approach and the approach of modern scholars, which is to really look at Cicero's letters more than his speeches or his treatises. Cicero's story is, on the one hand, an ordinary story. He had some goals. He was a man who made some mistakes. And he died without anyone even actually knowing where he's buried. On the other hand, his story is an extraordinary one by virtue of its being a human story.